From 11FS, I'm David Breer, and this is Fintech Insider News. Today, we bring you Starling's cross-border payments and their research into everyday sexism in financial advertising. Google wants to be a bank's friends rather than being a competitor. And DDA Drogba becomes Standard Charter's first customer in the Ivory Coast. All this and more on today's show. What's up, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to this week's episode of Fintech Insider News. We're coming to you live from the 11FS offices in WeWork Allgate. After probably, what, like a five-week absent, I'm back. It's David Breer. And then uh, this week, I am joined by my 11FS colleagues, Jason Bates. Say hey, Jay. Hey. And Ross Gallagher. How's it going, Ross? Hi, really well, thank you. Very, very good. This week, we have a return of i was trying to think charlie of how often you've been on the show now like it's like one after dark and maybe like four new shows now i think it's something like four or five maybe impressive dude you're uh, you're a constant guest here which is nice so charlie wood principal consultant at capco and joining you charlie we have alexandra chung who is the senior strategist at crooksy and co how's it going good thanks how are you not bad are you regretting being here yet or a little is it bit, yeah? yeah okay well, well well hopefully you'll you'll relax into the news and and by that point, let's get into it. So first up, we have an interesting story, actually a, a collection of Starling stories here. So Starling cross-border payments. So this is Starling launching the send money abroad feature. What do we think about this one? Is this them going about trying to take on TransferWise or is this them really just diversifying around the proposition that they're doing? I mean, well, is this just SEPA payments? That, that's, what I, that's what I kind of gathered from it, in which case they've signed up to SEPA. It does look like that. They're in this situation where they can transfer money to over 37 countries worldwide, 19 different currencies straight from the Starling app. So this is a, a kind of an interesting, it feels like it's more than just the SEPA thing. It feels like it's a, like I say, it's kind of like a transfer-wise competitor. I mean, they could be they could be hedging bets. They're a member of SWIFT and SEPA. Maybe they're like, oh, and let's also do something a bit more edgy, a bit more transfer-wise. Yeah, I mean, they announced that they joined SEPA, I think, 12th of December, 2017. They had a, a tweet to say that they're now a direct member um, of the single euro payments area. So uh, I assume that this then a few months later is the customer facing you know, vision of that. No, but I think also if they want to expand beyond Europe and UK, this is a natural move and does make sense for them. It is a kind of, it creates a easier path for them to break into other markets. Yeah. So this is just more of Starling laying down the infrastructure for world domination then, essentially? I think so. I think there's something here around um, they're sort of plugging the gaps. I, I think what's been fascinating to watch with the fintechs for so long is the sort of entry points. So I guess Monzo came to market with a prepaid card. You know, Tandem have kind of come in now with their cashback credit card. I love that um, Starling's creating a bit of a buzz now because they came to market. They took a little bit longer, but they came with a more complete proposition. And I think they're now like plugging what was left of those gaps well i sort of speaking of plugging of gaps the next story from starling is really sort of aligned last week about the uh, international women's day and, and Anne's uh Anne Bowden going out and talking about the the lack of diversity in in many organizations they, they actually conducted some stu- a study themselves looking at the media stereotypes of women in financial coverage which is really really interesting Anne was describing this as just this everyday sexism where women are described as splur and excessive spenders with poor judgment if they uh, go and buy some shoes or something and actually that they need to rein in their spending and limit their outgoing in order to save. Whereas articles aimed at men painted their readers as savvy financial and financial planners um, rather than uh, going out and spending rather than saving their pennies, which is all seems a bit sort of bizarre, really, doesn't it? You know, I think we're I think we're almost a bit numb to sexism in, in the media to a certain degree since we, there was push-up bras being advertised on billboards and in uh, train stations type thing. But I think this is a very fair point that Anne was making. What do you guys think? I think, well, is are we numb to everyday sexism? I think I don't believe in that at all. Um, I mean, I work at a commercial strategy firm and every single day, every single event I go to, mainly dominated by men i either get asked are you an event organizer are you in pr or are you in marketing when you're at the event yeah wow so and i'm like oh that's really shocking why do you think that oh uh and you know now i've just said is it because i'm a woman and they very openly admit yeah that is why wow 
That's, so, that's scary. <laughs> yeah. Like scarily brave of them saying it as well to a certain degree. The, the point I was making is actually like, I think in, if you look at TV adverts, if you look at billboard adverts, they're so heavily specialized towards certain audiences. In some instances, just, you know, the, the reaction of uh, elements of um, stupidity in some people in terms of actually what's going on there. So, you know, this, this, I, I kind of think this is stating something that we probably knew for a long time, but it just doesn't feel like the, that trend is kind of changing. You know, definitely if you kind of go back to the 80s and we've sort of moved a lot beyond the weirdness that was out there in terms of uh, randomly sitting in a bath full of bubbles, advertising some chocolate with a, you know, a scantily clad lady type thing. That doesn't seem like it was the advertisement that was actually necessary for chocolate. But I, I kind of feel like it's a, you know, I don't know how we're going to get through that like the unseen biases things without just a complete reset on this, if I'm honest. I thought it was it was good from Starling. I mean, it's interesting. It's the first time I think I've seen a, a, a new challenger brand do something that got covered uh, by Forbes and Guardian and The Mirror and lots of sort of mainstream uh, media outlets. It's very much on brand for them. They're really kind of pushing that. It was interesting research. It Get, uh, gathered some headlines um so i thought it was uh you know it, it, it was good combined with that hashtag make money equal uh it it created something for them i think and i think that was interesting mm, it'll be interesting to see if they do more of this I, obviously you know i don't think it's just the fact that Anne is a uh, woman ceo uh, similar to the conversation that i had last week with uh, alison rose who's the ceo of uh, commercial bank for rbs she was making the point really that she she doesn't want to be famous for being a woman ceo she wants to be famous for being a ceo uh, first and foremost, and being a role model for other people to kind of move forwards, which I, I think is the right way to go about it. You know, I don't know how we're going to get away from, you know, there's no shortage, though, of, of bait for this type of thing. You know, if you go on social media on uh, Instagram or uh, Facebook, or, you know, there's like Lad Bible and all of these things, you know, it's heavily sort of targeting sort of youth, and it just becomes um, the norms. And I guess this is what we're really talking about is actually, how do we reset some of those norms to be focused a little bit more about balance and aspiration on both parts, whether it be about a, a young girl or a, a young boy sort of sort of moving towards doing While at the same time, understanding that uh, we're looking for equality, but still to see that there are differences. I mean, I pulled out, uh, there was, I remembered some stats from last year that HMRC uh, showed that uh, men um, uh, invest heavily in stocks and shares ICES, where women tend to go for cash ICES. So for um, um, for every million stocks and shares ICES held by men, there are only 870,000 held by uh, women. So there's obviously something different there, at least in this this difference between not necessarily, you know, how, whether women are going out to buy expensive shoes, but very much against investing versus saving. There's definitely a difference. So I'm I'm keen that we don't throw out the baby with the bathwater. We acknowledge differences in in sexes because ultimately, in order to create great products for for end customers, you have to really understand what's going on in the first place. But equally, using those old tropes um whatever they are those old stereotypes and caricatures um yeah is definitely old and getting called out i i think you're right i think there is there is a difference um and you know it might be with regards kind of um appetite for risk that sort of stuff but the reality is i mean this is a problem so um these these insights have come from linguistic analysis of about 300 finance articles and the problem is it's not being framed in terms of a difference to risk appetite it's like framing how they refer to men as positive and essentially how they refer to women as negative that's the issue and we have to call it out i agree uh moving on there is a really actually uh well i, I sort of said in the office earlier on like totally called this one like at least two years ago which is, which is great but this is the state of neobanks so this is an article in business insider written by sarah kachansky actually hello sarah we know you listen um the uk neo bank market has reached a critical juncture. So this is all about um, Starling and Monzo topping um, being the top two banks in a customer satisfaction survey. And this is knocking First Direct off the top spot for what seems like a decade. So this is amazing, really. I think we've been talking about for, for a while now, we expect to see a, a real sort of reset on what good is, you know, the bar of, uh, you know, what a, a 99% scoring rating is in terms of what a, a great experience is, is completely 
completely different now in the the days of uh, you know intelligent digital services being delivered into the market, which is fantastic. I know we're seeing a lot more uh, you know higher quality of capability coming through in terms of uh, what you're looking at as well, Ross. Agreed. Yeah, and you know, um, sitting sitting within the research team here at Eleven FS, you know, I, I look at this um, this stuff all the time. I think you know we've got lots of examples now where. Um, even even big established banks are starting to move almost sort of digital first. You've got um, BBVA and they've got 80-something percent of in-branch functionalities now you can do in the app. And and within that, they're also like streamlining these journeys. They're making them easier to complete. Um, there was a really good point made on the um, the show last week by Sarah, who was on the show, that, you know, these these guys, the Starlings, the Monzos, they're all signed up to like FSCS. They've got, they're as secure as a, a current account that you would get from any of the big providers. So, you know, why wouldn't you go and have your current account with these guys? I, I guess the argument against this to a certain degree is though First Direct still offer a lot more products. Like really are Starling and Monzo are truly a competitor to First Direct and HSBC so generally now? Or I not? get this argument. And I think this has always been the, the or typically been the argument against fintechs insofar as it's like well they can't really you know achieve scale they've kind of picked off like cherry picked one particular function they're going to do it really well but isn't this what open banking is for you know i can plug things in different products and manage my manage my my products across providers in that way and when you are you definitely can but you can provide those services but it doesn't necessarily mean that you can gain the scale of the revenue from it so just because you're selling somebody else's loan you'll get a, a fee for it but you won't get the you know the balance sheet benefit if you're taking in deposits or you know the the real nice fees if you're lending stuff out so i, I you know i think it's just interesting to see that clearly if if um a sample size was used of 2,000 people in this space, that enough people in 2,000 people were using Monzo and Starling to make it make a difference. You know, that is is that a, well, is that a big enough sample size to feel like actually that was an impact across that market? Well, so customer satisfaction is, is your customers voting whether or not they like your service, right? Now, that's not in comparison of, oh, but what do you reckon if they also sold shoes? Oh, well, they're really bad at selling shoes because they don't sell any shoes. It's all about the services they offer I really like. So I saw this more as a case of, is this proof that the demographic that those banks are aiming for really crave self-service, not some sort of concierge type service, which is typically what you get when, oh, but you need to have a phone center to phone up to do something. You need to have a branch to go and get someone else to do something. No, this seems to be a shift towards actually let me do it myself and I'll be very, very happy with that. Rather than the breadth and scope of the functionality and products and services they offer, more a case of they do this and they do it incredibly well in a self-service way and that's the dominating factor for customer satisfaction. Hmm. Yeah, but I guess if you look at the UK banking market, there's 70 million debit accounts and only 1.4% of people are actually switching their accounts. So, I mean, it's great that, you know, these neobanks are doing whatever they can to increase customer satisfaction. But it seems like, I mean, as the article says, you know, it's really slowed down at this point. But, but I think that is a... Um a backward lagging indicator. I mean, we are, we've often spoken. In fact, when we were when I was looking at the business case for for some challenger banks, we were you know putting together. Um, quite often, people would say, "Ah, but look at the switching rate." But actually, when you look at uh, the commodity uh, current account, there is no reason to switch. There's no reason to switch from HSBC to Barclays to Lloyd's or whatever. A green card, a blue card, a red card, it's all the same thing. So ultimately, either your bank really pisses you off or £150 that someone's going to give you to switch is the thing that grabs you and therefore you want the money. So people aren't switching because there's these differentiated services. And I'd, I'd also argue that Starling, Monzo, Revolut, I mean, they're at MVP level. They're, they're not even at, at the equivalent level of, of full end-to-end services that the main bank apps are. So even at MVP, the fact that they've got, you know, Revolut and Monzo and a few of there's got to be a couple of million customers, I guess, in total out of that 70 million with a substandard or at least something that doesn't really provide all of those services. I think the the switching rates talk about the big players, but ultimately it's a very big market. And and I would argue that even if Starling, Monzo and Revolut aren't the players that, that win ultimately – this is the direction of travel that ultimately that kind of service will win in the end um, versus that traditional commodity account. It's interesting though, isn't it? So First Rate was founded in 1989, wasn't it, in terms of the, the coming to market? And I think they've got somewhere between 1.5 and 2 million customers. Uh, Revolut has 1.5 million customers now, and they've been around for, what, three years? You know, and Now, I know there's a, a, like a different complexity in terms of what they're doing, but 
you know the scale is there isn't it so it's going to be really interesting to see what what happens on this one and I, and I guess as more and more things come to the market then there's going to be more and more sort of disruption in these tables i do wonder though if if this is satisfaction scores this is the type of thing that does hit mainstream media more doesn't it you know this is the stuff that you could see the telegraph and the mail picking up and you know it being in the money department of the thing so actually arguably this is the type of good pr that these companies need to really really kick up you know it's only when you start self-fulfilling yeah mainstream media is what really sort of drives numbers doesn't it Uh, and i guess there was a sting in the tail of this survey as uh, alexandra was uh, was referring to in that the percentage of uk customers willing to use a digital only startup bank in this particular survey fell from 78 percent in 2017 to 54 percent by the end of the year so that's 2,000 people across the uk in in apparently what was a representative uh, sample Uh, and that's interesting i mean is that uh, if that actually is true then what's causing that because i i you know i don't understand what what would cause that trend interesting of course, if you want to actually watch these UK neobanks in action and see how their propositions and experiences are coming to life against those traditional competitors, then check out 11fspulse.com and request a demo today. Moving on, and I guess this is uh, maybe in a, a reaction to some of the uh, things that have been coming through from some of the challenges, HSBC are launching their open banking app within the next coming months. Um, this is aimed to target uh, launch on the first week of May and releasing their connected money app. So this is their their first big response to all of the opportunities that are there. I think this is really interesting. So bizarrely, like HSBC have been one of the um, you know m- biggest organizations to be going out there and shouting about what they're doing and how they're going about doing it which for me you know the the sort of um the perception in hsbc is is not necessarily that they would be at the cutting edge of the the, the changes and the the sort of revolution that open banking would be, would bring but it really feels like they've got on the front foot with this one i, I mean i think in terms of what we're seeing around aggregation at the moment we're still very much phase one um you know, you can link your accounts. And if we're looking at kind of Starling Marketplace, they've got a couple of providers on there. They're doing a really great, great job in terms of building them out. But the reality is I can connect Pension B. All right, fine. If I have my pensions with Pension B, I'll connect them. If I don't, I'm not, I don't know the benefits of like moving my pension from Aviva, for example, a Scottish Widows over to Pension B. I think it's where we're really going to start to see the traction. And Jason, I think this comes back to your point from the last one is when we start to see that sort of like, upped value exchange so when you can tell me oh you know what actually if you do this proactively come to me and this is like smart algorithms based on like seeing all of my behavioral data when you can come to me and say you know what ross when you switch now or if you do this so it's financial advice we can save you like 20 pounds a month or whatever um that's when we're going to start to see that differentiation i think Mm. it's interesting we're we're still talking about uh you know open banking is all still centered around what can I get from other people to a certain degree, isn't it? I, I think the interesting point is going to be when we start getting a uh, how do I distribute my products through other people's communities to a certain degree. I know some of the smaller players are looking at the you know the marketplace uh, banks in, as a way of accelerating their uh, their distribution through communities that are not theirs. Um, and I guess that's a di- very different place when you're one of the biggest banks on the planet. But you know. Are we going to start seeing that soon? I, I guess we should cut these guys some slack, right? This is the first step on a long journey. It'd be interesting uh, if they're consuming other people's open banking APIs and, and not their own. That would be an interesting one to see. Um, I, yeah, I can't wait for the use case that isn't aggregation to come out um, because that one just feels like it's done to death. And like you say, it's all about leveraging everybody else and hoping that they've done a good job. Well, I well, it's just such an easy business case internally for a bank, isn't it? It's like, yes, we can use this data. It's all about banking. So it's banky stuff looking at banky stuff and we can get everyone else's data we know more about the customer we can then you know get them to switch it's sort of old paradigm thinking using new new technology and i think aggregation is at the top of everyone's sort of shopping list for what to do but as we often talk to clients about i I think for me the interesting things around the apis are apis enable end-to-end journeys on a particular platform delivered by a number of partners, whether it's Uber using Google Maps and Braintree and the uh, APIs to your phone and internal APIs to deliver that end-to-end taxi service. It's like actually the best use of APIs are to deliver those end-to-end connected journeys 
But that's a very different way of thinking about things. That's not a traditional bank thing. So suddenly, um, I think we'll end up seeing those interesting use cases come out, but I'm not sure we'll see them being delivered by banks. It's so funny, actually, um, you said that because, you know, as part of our process, we interview um, C-suite members at banks and whenever they engage with fintechs all they ask for is an end-to-end solution in compliance whatever it is they said they'll say we're looking for an end-to-end solution but it looks like when it's turned back to them it's a different attitude completely (laughs) Uh, do as i say not as i do to a certain degree yeah it's uh well i I guess that's always the case if you're the if you're the incumbent with all of the customers Uh, you know we talked about this a lot before it's kind of um, this there's no there's no upside here you know, you're only losing because you're exposing yourself to risk and uh, a level of change that you're maybe not ready for. Unless you uh, you really take the step in order to provide value and make money from it. But it is a change in business model and operating model from I'm providing an account to I'm going to now curate these services or be a part of that curation in order to deliver these bigger pieces. So it's, it's not about getting a mortgage. It's about moving house or moving my life. It's not about doing an unsecured personal loan. It's about buying a new laptop in a way that I can afford over a period of time. Um, or smoothing out my finances because I have lots of bills come in and out annual, quarterly, monthly. And those sort of bigger journeys take a different way of looking at it because it's no longer about selling a product. It's about delivering a service. That's the differentiating thing, isn't it? But you do need you do need like access to all of the customer's data to do that and to deliver that effectively. You also need smart algorithms. I think that I'm going to give the incumbent banks a little bit more credit. I think... As much as the fintechs, they are very much aware that, you know, that that is the end game and that's the only way that they're going to survive. Um, I think whoever's going to win effectively is going to be the person who delivers that in the context of like financial wellness. I think there are going to be winners and losers, but I think ultimately the customer is going to win out. Isn't it funny though, open banking, it was supposed to be uh, about everybody else being able to use banking services and the only people that care are banks. <laughs> I mean, show me the health insurance company that consumes my transaction data and makes an assumption about my lifestyle and gives me a reduction or an increase in my premiums. I mean, and they're, they're immediately adjacent to banking, like let alone show me an Amazon that can do something better for me. It is, it is interesting, isn't it? I think this is going to roll on. I, I think the, the thing, like I said a second ago, is, you know, we... Uh, as an industry of sort of praised fintech players for coming in with a, an alpha, uh, you know, a beachhead in a thing. And, and I guess the time will tell on this one whether this is, this is it. You know, is this the thing that they do or is this just the beginning of the, the sort of transformation in terms of where we're going? So uh, uh, well done, HSBC, for being one of the first people going out and doing something. We'll uh, see what you do next. Stay uh, tuned. Another app designed for helping people control and save their money is uh, Tandem have acquired Parity, which I don't think anybody really saw this one coming, did they? So, you know, Tandem are performing pretty amazing tricks here, really, uh, having um, acquired uh, Harrods Bank recently and now acquiring Parity. Um, I didn't really know a great deal about Parity in terms of the scale of it, but Parity is a, a PFM app, essentially, sort of standalone. I guess the thing that I sort of found interesting about this one is that really, like, given all of the context of open banking, the opportunities for Parity really to be sort of supercharged by being able to, you know, aggregate that data and do interesting things with it really would be now, I guess. So, but all of the indications that I guess we're sort of seeing on this one is that there might be an element here of aquahire. Um, and while, um, because the, the, the sort of story alludes to the fact that, uh, the CEO and the CTO are, are joining the tandem team to be, uh, fully engaged with what it is that tandem are doing. And I don't really see too much of an issue with that, depending on how much it was that they paid for parity. So I don't believe that necessarily parity with only 95,000 users in the UK was being bought for the, uh, the, the, the base, you know, the customer base, but potentially they're just acquiring them for smart people. And, um, we've seen that in the past with BBVA uh, acquiring Simple and Shamir running all of their API programs. So, you know, is this just a smart move from Tandem's perspective to acquire some talent that they might not have been able to get out otherwise? I actually think it's a little bit more than that. I think they've... um you know, obviously Tandem have had their sort of well-publicized ups and downs. I think they've been on a bit of a spending spree. Um, you know, they've acquired Harrods, got their banking license through that. Um, they've come to market with a, what I'd consider a pretty impressive hook, their cashback credit card, no fees while spending abroad. Um, I think that's a good sort of like entry point, And I think it's a sort of case of building out the rest of their proposition. It's kind of like come for the cashback credit card 
and stay for the PFM. I don't think um, this can be seen as a win for parity, though. You know, every startup and uh, app creator uses the biggest number they can find, which is not really number of monthly active users, but how many people have downloaded my app in the last four years. So, you know, this was created in 2014. It's now 2018. 95,000, I would argue, downloads, and unless someone you know, can correct me. So this isn't a vibrant, virally growing community. Every startup needs to raise their next round based on great traction that have already had investment previously. So I'd argue that, you know, they were probably shopping around looking for something. Um, They are about to be enveloped by all kinds of people who are fresh uh, to to the game based on open banking, who are now looking at PFM. So, you know, they've got experience, they've got a team, they've worked it through, they've got, they've, you know, they've got something in place. Uh, but, but for me, this isn't uh, buying, you know, a virally growing hockey stick company. It's actually acquiring a, you know, an experienced team in order to build this thing for you. I mean, you're almost painting it there as parity trying to get out of the market that they're worried they might flounder in as the other players come into the open banking scene. I don't know anything behind the scenes. Uh, I think you just look at the figures and you, um, you know, you think, you know, that's it's not a, a huge number of, of uh, users, which I would take for downloads. Um, you know, I, I'm sure it's a talented team. Otherwise, you know, they would uh, Tandem wouldn't have uh, wouldn't have looked to them. But I don't know what you guys think. And we all know the greatest product doesn't always win, right? So they could have the greatest product, but yeah. the market could just swing in a different direction. Well, I mean, Money Dashboard have been trying for God knows how long, what, 2007 or something? So there was always this great thing before uh, open banking was there. Is our customers really going to give you their bank credentials in which you could empty their accounts in order to use PFM? And I think, you know, we we know from experience that's just not the case. I mean, those guys, Money Dashboard, Parity, a few others, have been trying for a long time. Now Christmas has come and suddenly the moment is here. But those guys have been spending capital trying to make the model work for, for a long time. Mm. And, and like I say, 95,000 95, customers or downloads in four years doesn't sort of smell like success, really, does it, in terms of where they're at? So, again, I guess this is going to be a really interesting one to see whether uh, a number of the people who are actually at Parity hang around in tandem. Um, and I guess at some point the, uh, the the amount that was actually paid for this will come out and we'll probably get a bit more rationalization for, uh, you know, whether it was a deal for, for tandem or not, really. Um, and on that note... Let's take a bit of a break and hear from our sponsors. And now in a break from our normal format, coming live from the Innovate Finance Global Summit in the Guildhall in London, this is Ross G bringing you a breakaway interview with Simon Taylor in conversation about the Global Digital Finance Initiative with Business Insider's Sarah Kachansky. Enjoy. So I'm Sarah Kachansky from Business Insider and I'm here to talk to Simon Taylor about the Global Digital Finance Initiative of which he is one of the founders. So Simon, what is the Global Digital Finance Initiative? It is an initiative um, (laughs) about global digital finance, uh, suitably vague. Um, So we founded Global Digital Finance. Um, so Jeff Bandman uh, is is helping out. Jeff Bandman, who's ex-CFTC, Lawrence Wintermeyer, the former CEO of Innovate Finance, uh, and my good self, really on the basis that uh, crypto assets, sometimes called cryptocurrencies, were driving a lot of, uh, kind of debate and questions, both in the world of big finance, but in the world of regulators. Uh, the G20 are meeting to discuss exactly that. Central banks have had their views. And the industry has largely been quite cooperative, but it didn't have one place at the global level to really have a conversation with the global establishment. And so we were looking to really convene industry and then bring all of that together. And that's exactly what we did. So on February the 21st, we put an impressive list of names from the industry, who will be announced soon, uh, into a room and said, okay, the G20 has asked four questions. One, we don't understand what tokens are. Two, uh, we'd like to understand the financial stability impact of crypto assets and cryptocurrencies. Three, we think investors need protections. And four, uh, crucially, we think there might be a lot of money laundering going on. And so that's what they're discussing in Buenos Aires. And this is what's, what's happening at the G20. The industry, as I said, have been doing doing a lot of uh, work in that space to help educate and inform. Um, but actually, now it's time for, uh, and there are lots of good uh, local initiatives, but it's time for global initiatives, I think. 
Yeah, so that, that's why the GDF has been formed, is to uh, provide an overarching um, organisational rallying point for those national initiatives. Yeah, I think if you're going to drive transparent crypto markets that are f- efficient and fair, but also inclusive, right? So it's not been obvious that the incumbents, so financial market infrastructure providers, exchanges, CSDs, and so on, or, or even big banks, could benefit from crypto assets. But also under, underneath the crypto asset is this idea of a token. I could have a token that represents a pound, a dollar, a euro issued by a central bank, and I could have a token that represents Bitcoin. The, the two things are really, really valuable. But actually, if I regulate the idea of Bitcoin, do I also mean I can't have more efficient old world financial markets? So it's, it's, the, also, it's the crypto industry as well as the incumbents coming together and saying, we think there's value in this technology. We want to work together. But you've seen, I think, the SEC have started um, making a lot of noise recently. We've seen um, folks from the uh, Bank of England have come out with statements. We've seen different approaches across the, the globe. And there are good local initiatives, but there wasn't really a global one. So we're hoping we can, we can potentially be that. And, and what's the aim of this? What's your ultimate goal? Is it to um, provide a framework that everybody can, can fit into? Is it to provide a framework that maybe those uh, national regulators can all adopt simultaneously and so you get a, a, a similar... Or, 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 you know, the same um, regulatory framework, or is it more about providing guidance? Yeah, I think there's more on the guidance side. So I think if you go back to those four questions they asked, we don't understand what a token is. Um, we, well, not that we don't understand it, we, we find confusion in the definition of a token. We want to understand monetary policy impact. We want to know um, what's our investors going to be protected and is the money laundering. That second one, the financial stability impact, I think the central bankers have answered that. Um, Mark Carney and the financial stability board actually came out and said, we don't think there's financial impact. In terms of we need clarity about what these things are. So global digital finance is building a taxonomy. In other words, we're going to describe what a token is, how it can be used both by incumbents and new market entrants. And then the second thing we're going to deliver once the taxonomy is launched, uh, which we're targeting April 4, uh, is going to be the building of a code of conduct. So learning from things like the FX code of conduct or the peer-to-peer industry um, association code of conduct here in the UK, how can an industry form its own code of conduct but in a transparent and inclusive way for regulators. And so those are our key deliverables. And we hope by the middle of this year, so by June, July, those will be available and we'll have some of the largest companies in the world adopting that code of conduct. Thank you so much, Simon. That's been really, really interesting. And uh, best of luck with getting everything done on time. Thank you so much. You can find out more at gdf.io. We wanted to let you know that if you love this show, how about seeing it live? We're going to be at Money 2020 Europe in Amsterdam this June, and we're bringing Fintech Insider live with us. We'll be bringing the podcast to the main stage right before the drinks reception, and you can be there. Sign up for tickets now. Go to europe.money2020.com forward slash register and use discount code 1811FS. That's 1811FS to get 200 euros off the ticket price. Welcome back. And as a reminder, Fintech Insider is brought to you by the people from 11FS. We build fully digital products and services for clients big and small. If you want to reach out, you can find us at 11FS.com, connect with us on Twitter at 11FS team, or drop us an email on hello at 11FS.com. Right, on with the news. So first up in the second half, we've got Google wants to be banks' friends, not their rival. I nearly did an evil laugh at the end of that one. What do we think? real or is this just kind of wolf in sheep's clothing banks are fish not food (laughs) that's what it sounds like (laughs) yeah i mean come on everyone is going to say that google makes great money from banks uh, in terms of their ad revenue but ultimately you know they say that they're working with banks to explore opportunities arising from psd2 they don't need banks to agree to anything in order to make that work. No contract is needed for the open banking APIs and PSD2. Google can suck up all of that data, can provide great insights, could do an, an amazing layer on top, and could create a whole new ad platform and a whole new revenue stream. So yes, you know, we'll be your friends. We're, your, we're not here to, uh, to do anything bad to you. Yeah, I guess if you look at China, for example, look at WeChat, Alibaba, every single one of them is integrating, well, moving into financial services. So look at that and then look at the title of this article. Google says it wants to partner with banks. Let's be honest. 
It is worrying, isn't it? So worrying sort of uh, ominousy of this this one. But um, so this was a uh, Lawrence Diss, who is head of commerce partnerships at Google Image. Miss Diss for sure. It's it's definitely her word. Sounds like a rap name, <laughs> like Miss Dynamite Two Anyway, Florence Diss was Sorry, speaking at Ms. the Fenevate conference in London. Uh, while they were expressing their opportunities to, to work with uh, companies uh, and opportunities arising around PSD2. So this was a, an interesting one that I, I saw at the end of this here, though, that um, she then went on to make the comment that Google um, shouldn't be seen as a possible rival. It's currently working with more than a thousand banking partners in 18 different markets. Wow. That's pretty impressive. I wonder, to your point, Jason, I wonder if those thousand banking partners are buying like ad space or, you know, pay- paying money for PPC or something along those lines, or whether that's actually a thousand banking partners that are looking to, to benefit from PSD2 pieces. Cause, you know, I- I'm sure all you guys are the same, but there's, there's so many destinations now that for me that are start at Google. Like the, if I'm looking for flights, it's Google. If I'm looking for shopping stuff, uh, as in like a, some sort of white good, I start with Google, uh, you know, anything other than that, I start with Amazon. But, you know, it kind of feels like it's a real core benefit of what Google does is being able to manipulate data. And to your point, Jason, open banking should just be like, you know. End-to-end journeys. Exactly. I, I, and I promise I'm not just playing devil, devil's advocate for the sake of it. But um, I am going to I'm going to take a slightly different perspective. I can actually see benefits on both sides for the sort of partnership model in this sense, like, um, we've seen um, Amazon, you know, maybe partner with Bank of America to offer um, SME loans and maybe partner with JP Morgan to offer checking accounts. Like, I get it because it get it, it allows the tech firm to sort of like, I guess, hedge on risk um, and they don't have to take on all the sort of regulatory baggage that comes with it. And it also allows the banks to access like brand new markets. So I, I get it. I get it as well. But then again, if you look at the market and look at all those big names, all the different partnerships that's, you know, has been claimed in the market, who's actually done a true partnership? And what has what results has that actually driven? It's very difficult. It's easy to put a logo on your website. But it's very difficult to actually generate a win win situation for both sides. Also, they say partnerships, I say you turn them into a commodity utility. So I'm going to be a, you know, I'm going to be that intermediary layer. I'm going to talk to your customers. I'll partner with you by essentially pushing you to the to the background. Uh, and I think it's that platformification that we've been talking about. You know, we're going to see that commodity uh, financial product provider, which at the moment is the banks. We're going to see these intelligent services layers, which in this case could be Google. We're going to see those end-to-end journeys and marketplaces. And at the moment, the question is like, a bank's going to be happy being those background pipes, those utilities. Are they going to get into these intelligent services? Are they going to do their marketplaces and end-to-end journeys? Or because uh, because the default path is they just get subsumed, like the telcos did. Do you really care on your iPhone whether it's EE or Vodafone or O2 who's at the top corner? I don't. You know that's whoever gives me the lowest price for the most amount of data and it works in the region I'm in. I'm in. I think it, I think it's interesting because Google's generally uh, they monetize sales. You know, being most efficient for selling something, whereas so much of banking is about service, isn't it? To, well, to you your say point. that. What about Google Maps, Gmail, Google Drive? Like, there's a lot that's there. It's driven by ad revenue, but there's lots of essentially uh, intelligent services. I mean, Google Street View. Good God, they've drove you know, cars around the world looking at every street. I often have wondered what the revenue case is for Google Maps. Has anybody got any, like, guesses on that one? Because, but but is that, is it, like, I don't see ads in Google Maps. I do, do often wonder that they're just knowing where I am and that's somehow some sort of data collection thing that actually leads to them being able to profile me better. What do you... Like a like Big Brother moment, I know, but you know, like well, that's just it, me being say, paranoid. Say you create a, a new service and it needs maps. Uh, you can obviously use the API in order to import maps into your app, or to use it on your website, or to do some great calculations. Like you're going to do an app on how do I get from A to B? Give me the directions, and that can be delivered as an API-based service. Now, and that's free to start off with, but you get a, above a certain number of, of use, uses of that, a certain number of API calls, and then Google come and say, well, it looks like you've got a successful business. We're providing the base infrastructure for that. So 
you need to give us some cash. That's drug dealer revenue models, though, surely. That's premium, get, premium, dude. No, that's it's get, the new that's digital world. Get you hooked and then start charging you for well, it. Well, you could always go to one of their competitors, like Apple Maps. <laughs> Hang on. <laughs> New. Yeah, can I just make a point about Apple Maps? Like, because actually, so I, I've said this for a while, but Apple Maps, does anybody use it? They just don't show tube stops, do they? In, and in, oh, they, in they, London, love, they, love, they love a dead end. I've severely taken really off love track a dead end. But, but in London, you navigate by how close something is to a tube, don't you? If they just did that one thing, Londoners would actually start using the bloody thing. But Maybe um, they have a partnership with Uber, who knows? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, staying with Google, uh, Google have banned crypto ads. So this is a, an interesting one given, like, it seems like quite a broad sort of um, disdain for, for cryptocurrencies in this space. But Google to ban crypto ads on uh, and cryptocurrency related products. The ban is going to be coming into effect in June. And Google said it would be taking down 3.2 billion ads that val- uh, that violated its advertising policies. Uh, that is ridiculous, isn't it? Like that is a, a... Well, I'm not sure that's crypto based ads. It said it took down 3.2 billion ads that violated its advertising policies in 2017. So there's a whole number of policies of stuff you can't advertise on Google. Yeah, I imagine there's a few things, isn't there? I was saying to you guys actually during the break, I I managed to get told off on Instagram for using the hashtag cryptocurrency, and Instagram sort of had a go at me for it, which was quite interesting. So, uh, How did you spell it? Is that that the issue? Hashtag don't care. (laughs) But um, But it does say that, that actually it's banning ads promoting financial products and services tied to cryptocurrencies and initial uh, coin offerings. So maybe this is just a, it doesn't really want to get into that regulator uh, space where all of a sudden it's doing financial promotions and therefore is liable. But Google wants to partner with the banks. What are you talking about? Surely. I just I like to think that um, Instagram and, and Google are doing their bits to protect us from like Steven Seagal endorsing Bitcoin with two eyes ICOs. That sort of nonsense, because that has to stop. Yeah, to be honest, I think that although I'm quite shocked by something like this, in a sense, it's actually quite good. Because thinking of crypto ICO, it's gotten so much hype. Everyone and their grandmother is buying into it. And that is very, very dangerous for the market. I actually know someone's grandmother who did buy into it. There you go. (laughs) I just love, I love the releases, you know, when when, when they get the celebrity endorsement. And it's always like, Steven Seagal is now a believer in Bitcoin with two eyes. And it's like, what are you talking about? How else do you spell Bitcoin, by the way? I always use two eyes. Well, so it's, but it's, but it's two eyes at the end, like B-I-T-C-O-I-I. Ah, uh, it's got three eyes. Oh, yeah, that, that was a fair point, actually. Yeah, so, uh, <laughs> it, it, it is interesting, but I, I think particularly in the ICO space, though, that basically we've got Google and Facebook saying it's not legitimate, right? That, that's quite an interest because they, for, for platforms... Platforms are generally reasonably agnostic about saying what is right, what is good and what is bad, aren't they? You know, there's limitations usually where legalities are. But from a cryptocurrency perspective and from an ICO perspective, nobody other than, uh, I guess, a few few countries have said they're either illegal or kind of not um, uh, not within the regulatory framework. So I, I think this is – I'm not sure Google or Facebook should be setting what I think is, you know, legally correct within financial Does services. this apply to firearms? <gasps> he said it. Um, I, I don't know. Like, it's- what you did there, Jay, was you pulled the pin through the and just just ran and just let, like left David drowning in the context of. But, but where does it stop though? Because all of these are no, no. It's being serious. I mean, uh, on, sure. on one hand, if you're like you're banning cryptocurrencies, but handguns are fine to uh, uh, or automatic weapons are fine to advertise. I'm not sure. I like. I've not. I've got no idea about the the Facebook policy for advertisements of uh, of guns. But I guess there's a, there's an element here about the the uh, the global stance of people like Google and Facebook who uh, are kind of applying a, an international kind of view on something. So to your point around like guns are legal to buy in the, in the US, but they're not here. Therefore, would they enforce a, a much more heavy restrictions around the imagery that's that's created on Instagram for for you know people to in guns and whatnot, whereas they'd be much more relaxed in the US. You know, like it's a, I don't know, I'm not sure I like my social media uh, monitor, um, 
sort of tethering what it is that I am and aren't allowed okay, to talk so about. Okay, so I've looked it up. So prohibited content on Facebook ads, uh, illegal products or services, discriminatory practices, tobacco products, drugs or related products, unsafe supplements, uh, weapons, ammunition, and, expose, uh, and explosives must not be promoted on Facebook. So there you go. I, I apologize. It sounds like the list of stuff you can't take on a plane, doesn't it? Well, adult products and services. Pretty much. Sensational content. That Sensational like content. Adults must. Uh, adults. Uh, adverts must not contain shocking, sensational, disrespectful, or excessively violent content. That's probably why I got into trouble on Instagram, I guess. But uh, um, and unfortunately, this story means that they won't be able to be promoting Square. So the next story is that Square shares rockets after allowing Bitcoin. So Square have got all into this stuff, which is great. So it was quite an impressive um, jump as well. So the shares in Square have gained over 200% in the last year, which is pretty impressive. Obviously, all of that not down to this this announcement. But shares set a record since it was announced as they, they are uh, cash app users would be able to buy and sell Bitcoin. So I guess this is off the back of a number of different announcements by people like Robin Hood that we've seen in this in this space in uh, Revolut over in the the UK doing this as well. And there's been a there actually has been a huge jump in users for and we know all three of those organisations in off the back of these types of announcements. So you know is, is this um, cryptocurrency purchasing going mainstream and allowing people who are a little bit more novice, a little bit more scared of uh, uh, Coindesk and uh, Coinbase in terms of being able to get information and actually purchase. What do you guys think? Um, I, so I, I actually quite like this story and um, we, we, we covered it in the news show um, a couple of weeks ago as well and they, Jack Dorsey kind of said that they're not going to stop at buying and selling. Um, they see it as a, a sort of transformative technology and they want to sort of move quite quickly and you know learn and explore different avenues. So um, I'm not surprised to see that they're share price has kind of gone up in response to that obviously because of the sort of excitement that sits around cryptocurrencies in general but also the sort of optimism of finding a new use case or something along those lines Jack Dorsey seems to be doing a pretty decent job at sort of straddling both of these companies at the moment, doesn't he? Both of them seem to have really had a, a rekindling of what it was that made them good in the first place, doesn't it? He's super cool. And this is what we keep coming back to is like, he's tech cool and he's sort of fintech cool and he sort of sits in the, those two, like in the middle of those two Venn diagrams where actually very few people have managed to sort of sit. I like him a lot. Not as much as Simon Taylor. You like Simon Taylor more than Jack Dorsey or you <laughs> Simon Taylor likes Jack Dorsey more than you do? I can categorically say both. I do. I mean, there's obviously a lot of money to be made in this. Uh, and I do wonder how much the cryptocurrency exchange uh, added to Revolut's uh, uh, recent announcement that they made profitability. Because essentially they're adding, I think, 1.5% to every purchase that you make there. So what they launched that in December 2017. And now, you know, March, they're saying they've had their first profitable month. Um there's something in, in there for me because especially against that business model of uh, wholesale uh, um, forex fees for the retail market, that's even with the premium users that they've got, that's really hard to make money on. And the fact that they've got profitable, I, I do wonder if, if this has been their golden goose, if actually allowing people to buy cryptocurrencies uh, and if they got enough of people to do that, then that could, could have added up to a significant amount of cash. Yeah, I think what I'll be really interested to see is whether or not this – upward trend is actually sustainable for their stock price because i think you know if you look at the word blockchain any company that's adopted that or put that into their new company their stock price has grown a significant amount because lots of people have that attitude of pumping and dumping in the market at the moment um but on the other hand, actually, I see it as quite an interesting opportunity because Bitcoin, cryptocurrencies in general, you know, a lot of people that's just getting started, it's not that accessible unless if you look at just Coinbase or a company like that, whereas Square might make that much more accessible for more people. So it's interesting. Yeah. And, and even then, like say, the, the Coinbase is reasonably impenetrable for a, you know, a, a normal human being, really. I think the, the sort of crypto geek sort of thing around that sort of makes a lot of people sort of quite shy about transferring um, money to a thing that they just 
don't understand haven't really sort of gone with so you know arguably a, a very easy straight through onboarding process and being then being able to buy cryptocurrency really easily um it's interesting because it starts to move all of these organizations into a very different space you know the thing that revolut and square and you know people of this like robin hood people of this ilk before it's about um being able to move instantly between these things and it's much more transactional whereas you know people getting into cryptocurrencies and bitcoins and all the old coins around this stuff it's a it's an investment you know so the the trended view of actually what the the changes are but you know it's, it's important well, investment stuff. in inverted quotes like it's a yeah, gamble but this is why i like robin robin hood's approach they've kind of they've launched like crypto they've sort of stripped away the fees but then they're also like introducing what may well be first-time investors to a much broader range of, of stocks and shares and actually probably talking towards speaking, looking at like a, a more diversified portfolio and a healthier relationship with investing. I still find that so weird, the idea of investing in something that was designed purely to solve the exchange of value problem and definitely not to tackle the store of value problem. It seems mad. I get it, I guess. But. Well, if these people keep seeing those graphs going up like they were going up, then, um, you know, it encourages people to sort of see it in that way, don't they? But um, I know uh, if Simon was here, he would definitely have some views on this one. Um, moving on, though, and staying with tech giants in this space, getting into banking, this is Amazon's e-commerce debit card. So this is Amazon launches first debit card in Mexico, which is kind of interesting in itself. You know, we're, we're used to seeing sort of uh, giants of American technology doing all of their stuff in Silicon Valley. But um, maybe this is one of the first instances where we're seeing people really sort of moving out of the US to, to do innovative things. I just want to say, this is, I mean, this is Amazon coming, surely. I mean, you've got a, a debit card. If you said you know, you add in cash back, you add in taking deposits. It's that whole move where Walmart, Target, big uh, Starbucks in the States has massive deposits. Um, Amazon's the big daddy of them all. So many people are, gonna, are, are buying more and more through Amazon. And to be able to uh, to get uh, Amazon Prime for free, to be able to get some cash backs, the fact that in the States they're still paying something like 2.5% on interchange, which means that Amazon could actually give you 2% off everything you buy. And that would absolutely be fine. They'd still be making money. So it would be super easy for them to, uh, to, to really provide a checking account, a current account that could be profitable and good for customers and give them more data and tie you into an ecosystem just like a lot of the big retailers are looking to do. Yeah, I, th- I think this is a this has. To, I, if I'm perfectly honest, I believe Amazon has just got into this cycle now of just being three or four steps behind uh, Alibaba, and it kind of feels like they're being forced into doing all of these things, teeing up this weird sort of East versus West kind of 2025 huge. I've got all of the Western payment systems and the distribution for uh, for sort of consumer goods and consumer capability. Like, where are they going to meet? It kind of feels like Central Europe is the point where they. Because with Alipay and all of the stuff that's going on with Alipay through Europe for, you know, theoretically just tourists going around and being able to make all of these payments, it it just feels like we're we're teeing up the heavyweight battle for 2025, really. Yeah, I mean, Alipay is definitely slowly dominating or entering into Europe through, you know, the Chinese tourists that are essentially dominating the travel industry at the moment. Literally, anytime you go anywhere, you can't avoid you know chinese tourists scale and spend i I read some statistics that uh chinese tourists spend like something like 160 170 percent more than anybody else when they're abroad which is amazing isn't it so no wonder people are setting up you know services for them because you know it's like you you gravitate to the people who tip better or work better you know it's weird yeah and that's why the chinese government is literally doing everything they can um, I don't know if I can say this actually, <laughs> but um, this is going to be interesting. <laughs> but <laughs> but um, to input, you know, regulations that really stops people from taking money out of China and in, into other regions. Um, I think there is, you know, because usually people in China they exchange money within banks and you're capped so you have a resident number and name and they track how much you actually exchange and once you've reached that limit you physically cannot do it anymore 
Um, I'm, I'm again going to offer a slightly different lens on this. Um, I don't think this is indicative of Amazon making massive moves into the financial services place. The, the, I, I think, you know, we've seen them partner with, um, with Bank of America in the US to offer SME lending. Um, but that's to a select few um, retailers that are already trading on Amazon's marketplace. I think this is a play. Um, there's a real um, lack of um, online shopping in Mexico. I really think this is just a play to encourage online spending. And again, it's with a view to just growing Amazon's marketplace. I don't think this speaks to them making a massive play into financial services. Mm, it'd be interesting to see how this one shapes out. I, I guess to sort of back that up, there was some statistics in this that less than a, a third of all adults in Mexico have a credit card. Um, so whether this is just them, you know, fueling the flames to be in a situation where they can actually just purchase through online is, is I get to guess, going to be seen. So um, moving on, we have a interesting one here that all about regulation of big tech. So this is a, a story that's come out of the FT saying. Uh, about Tim Berners-Lee hits out at big tech companies. I kind of feel like Tim Berners-Lee does this one every sort of six months ago, doesn't he? He's like my baby. Day. It turned into an adult I didn't want. Yeah, it does It does feel like that. But So this is Sir Tim Berners-Lee, and I should give him his title with Sir on that one. He did do some pretty damn impressive stuff, didn't he? So we should, uh, we should be reasonably humble at this one. Uh, the inventor of the World Wide Web has attacked Facebook, Google, and Twitter for promoting misinformation and questionable political advertising while exploiting people's personal data pretty much summarizes their business model, I That's guess, to a internet, certain degree, doesn't it? isn't it? Yeah. Um, <laughs> he's, he said a new legal or regulatory framework may help to limit the power of big tech companies, which has become overly dominant and, and accountable to ordinary users. Now, I think this kind of harks back a little bit to what I was saying earlier on, but like, is it the job of Facebook and Google and Twitter to kind of regulate the users of that to what it is that they see and how they see it? Or is it actually, do we want the the internet to be a, an element of you know openness and freedom where you know things can happen and people can find them? What, what do you guys think? Uh, it's always been referred to as a mirror of society, right? That's the whole point of the World Wide Web. And unfortunately, society is a dark, dark place full of <laughs> trolls, apparently, <laughs> and cat pictures. <laughs> Um, they're the two are they that's, that's the, the only thing on the internet i'm fairly sure i've seen your browser history i can confirm this <laughs> gifts of cats um but it, it is interesting i mean he was a big proponent of net neutrality and and i think he's kind of losing his optimism a bit over the world wide web i i saw him speak at uh so by the way does anyone call it that anymore the world wide web I do. <laughs> what do I've you? never seen you in a presentation say, and ladies and gentlemen, you know, uh, thank you for, for hearing my presentation. I'm going to talk about how you can do banking on the World Wide Web. <laughs> it's 1995 again. <laughs> it won't get funded. You didn't say LAR blockchain, did yeah, you? Yeah, so, and he works on Netscape as well. <laughs> but, uh, but I think, um, you know, I saw um, uh, Sir Tim Berners-Lee speak at Innovate Finance last year. And I guess the uh, it does seem to be becoming a slight sort of parody of himself to a certain degree. Is this an element of when I was young kind of rhetoric around what he wanted it to be, to your point, Jason? Or is this a, a real sort of, uh, you know, realistic view on the, the difficulties of managing something that uh, maybe he didn't intend it to be? I've, I've got a quote from him, which is the one of my favorite quotes of all time. I'm still an optimist, but an optimist standing on the top of a hill with a nasty storm blowing in my face, hanging onto a fence. <laughs> Wow. And who said that? That was Tim Berners-Lee. Oh, that's him from the man himself. <laughs> nice. I'm guessing he's not a fan of Facebook then. So uh... well, there is something here, isn't there? Like we, we, we know that, um, you know, Google, for example, and Facebook, like use our data, they monetize it. And, you know, as with all like profit driven companies, maybe that always isn't above board. That doesn't stop us making something like 65,000 Google searches a second globally. Um, so, you know, again, maybe it comes back to like, value exchange to a point um how relevant is this considering we're about to move to a web 3.0 where it's all built on the blockchain and we control every single piece of information that's controlled in those interactions never going to happen <laughs> i do think that there there was something about the freedom but also the low cost base with which if you 
uh, allowed anyone to post anything. Essentially, you could create very low-cost infrastructure that millions of people could use in order to deliver things. And you could say, look, we're not a publisher. We're just a marketplace. Or I'm just a place. I I don't um, support any of these things that people publish online. I just enable them to connect to other people to make that happen. And there was something powerful about that idea, about the scalability of of reasonably low-cost infrastructure that can connect billions of users together. But it has this dark side of when you get to billions of users and there's no identity and the uh, and suddenly you're allowing terrorists and uh, racists and all kinds of um, President Trump supporters <laughs> <laughs> to connect together. Uh, and you start to see just your point that actually when when there isn't the control there, then suddenly fake news does appear and all kinds of interesting, um, you know, hearsay works on the on the web. Then the question is, well, do, does the what we've got from that low cost infrastructure and the ability to use this for free to actually use this stuff for free um, is suddenly the it weighing on the other side and actually what we need is more control more editing more either more intelligent algorithms or people getting involved because i think we've we've gone be, we've gone over the hump of that payback curve and now we're seeing what absolutely free uncontrolled uh, media and connection looks like uh, and it's not a not a great thing uh, but but what's the alternative though because we get into a, a scenario here where we just get a filtered view of the world don't we you know i, th- I think you this, have a filtered view uh, anyway you have a reality the scariest bubble thing of your and, and back to friends. jason's point i think it is something to do with more sophisticated algorithms because at the moment it's like oh ross read a guardian article let's absolutely slam him with a whole heap of guardian articles and it's like that's why things become a complete echo chamber yeah, I don't know. I, I I just sort of feel like actually at the point where we're just getting such a we end up with such a filtered view of the world in terms of the things that we're looking at. And actually, then social media starts dictating what is good and isn't good and what is right and what isn't right. Then and then doing that at a, again, a, a global scale rather than doing it at a local scale. Just it just sort of feels like my my world becomes a lot more narrow. And but, actually, but it's already doing that. And but its definition of wrong or right is how it gets you to engage so actually uh, it will give you things that it thinks you will engage with in order to keep you on the site for longer there was this great uh, guy i was just looking up quickly um there's a swedish philosopher called nick bostrom who's come up with this idea that ai won't kill the uh, you know kill the world by b- gaining consciousness and being evil uh, so he has this um this thought experiment about an ai that's only job is to make paper clips it's a paperclip maximizer. And the idea is that actually, as it, as it um, gets more intelligent, because the more intelligent it is, the better it can make paperclips, it just goes out of control. Not because it's, intelli- it's uh, conscious, but just because the only thing that drives it is maximizing paperclips. So ultimately, this, this thought experiment leads with like the entire world being a paperclip uh, manufacturer because the AI is there. Now, take that not to paperclips, but to engagement in social media. And actually, if you take Facebook and Google and, and whatever else to its extreme, it really wants you on that on that device 12 hours a day or however long you're awake in order just to keep giving you that engagement. So I, I worry that it's not about the... Um, it's the incentives that are that are lined up here and how it works. And that's, that's exactly the word I was looking for. Like For me, I've got... I feel like I've got a moral compass now. Whether or not it points to the same magnetic north as everybody else thinks, maybe not. But uh, but I am the master of my own choice of what I think is relevant, important, moral, correct, right or wrong. Uh, I definitely don't want to see my worldview censored by a third party trying to make that decision for me and impart their own moral compass upon me. I always feel like it's a lack of education piece. If you're swayed by fake news, then it probably means that one needs to educate the populace of people who are believing that. Now, should you be allowed to say that? I do believe in freedom of speech. Like Liberty is one of those things that I fundamentally believe in. You should be allowed to say it however you want, whatever you want. And it's all about the incentives, like you say. If the incentive is to ensure that you get maximum engagement, that's fine. If you've got an educated populace, you can tell the difference between clickbait and something that actually might be a material picture of the world. Well, you, you've got my vote. I, but all, so the only thing I wanted to say on that is I don't think it's an issue of like having a populace that's like not informed and, and, and doesn't have an opinion. I think the issue is... Like an echo chamber lulls you into a full sense of security. So you might have people who otherwise might have gone out, for example, and voted against Brexit 
but didn't because they felt that it was such a slam dunk because they were so like entombed in their own echo chamber on Facebook that they went, well, I don't have to go out and vote. That's the danger for me. That's the real danger. Scary. They, uh, you know, lulled into security with Brexit and potentially Russian sort of Facebook ads lulled everybody into voting for Trump. So it's uh, amazing. Wow, we've, we've not got controversial at all on this Zuckerberg podcast. has some power these days, doesn't he? 55 but, um, minutes in and we got to Brexit. Yes! <laughs> Indeed, yeah. And the Russians. And we've touched on Trump about three times. We're, we're going for all groups on this one. And finally, the last story of the show. So this is one up on Finextra. This is Standard Charter signs Didier Drogba as its first customer for online-only bank. Really interesting story. This, like, to be honest with you, like, we we have uh, had many a conversation about Will I Am and Atom Bank, but actually, when it comes to Standard Charter launching this digital only bank in the Ivory Coast, they literally could not have got a better person to do this because he is he is a god in that country in terms of. So the fact that Didier Drogba signed up to this, I believe, will get like. Everybody Marketing in that done. country. Job yeah. done. Go home. He's got statues. He's got like breads and beers and everything named after him. Like he is a god. And especially because it's the Ivory Coast is the fifth highest mobile money penetration region in Africa. So, I mean, if you're going to go after a region, that's like a pretty competitive area. Like, get the number one guy and say he's with us. Yeah, smart move. Um, I, so- I like this so much more than Steven Seagal endorsing bitcoin with you've really three got eyes. This, you've really got this steven seagal thing is really got you isn't he's, it? He's, he's a believer in bitcoin with three eyes they're just setting it up for a, for some sort of crypto uh, currency piece oh that's what so this next for. week yeah didier drogba endorses dogecoin. it's got to be yeah. dogecoin yeah. <laughs> so standard charter came out on this one and said the new bank will be a forerunner for their global campaign with forthcoming launches in kenya ghana nigeria uh, already penciled in in terms of what they're doing so this is pretty impressive is this is this just Standard Charter's smart move to kind of go and dominate a continent here? Or what are they doing? Yeah, I think so. I guess we'll see. I mean, a lot of people have tried. A lot of people look at M-Pesa and say, great, you know, we can do that and we'll make it work. I think what's interesting is this, is that they know that it's not just about the technology. It's about community. It's about that trust, celebrity. You know, there's a whole... Uh, there's a, a status you know if drogba's got it then i've got it i'm i'm like him he's like me you know there's there's a whole lot of um of uh, of stuff in there there's going to be a bunch of chelsea supporters signing up for this one as well given the didier drogba thing so jeff in the office will definitely want one of these now which is which is good so and on that note this wraps up this week's news show so thank you so much to our guests for putting up with us this week uh where can we find more about you so alexandra where can we find out more about you um, Google Croxy and Company go on our website croxy.co.uk otherwise my Twitter handle is at AC underscore thinks uh, what does Croxy do? so we are a commercial strategy firm focused on B2B tech companies on helping them grow work with investors um, as you know private equity firm VCs as well as um, tech companies on pricing breaking into new market etc sounds good and chico where can people find out more about you this is jason's favorite question <laughs> do, you, do you want to ask me the questions yeah so where can they find you on social media <laughs> p.o box 50 <laughs> e- straight up email charles.wood at capco.com and there's nothing wrong with it I, I'm, I'm still with you tim i'm still with you the world wide web and email i've got you back <laughs> Ross, where can people get in touch with you? Uh, Ross Gallagher07 on Twitter or RossGerd11FS.com. And Jason, where can people find out more? At Jason Bates on Twitter. <laughs> Wonderful. And Wait, I- is that the one that filters out the content? <laughs> no, <laughs> Twitter pretty much gives you the fire hose. <laughs> and I'll be over in my own little echo chamber on Twitter at David Breer. As always, if you like what you've heard from this week's show, follow us on Twitter at Fintech Insiders and drop us an email on podcast at 11fs.com if you want to get in touch. Don't forget to subscribe and please, please give us one of those reviews on iTunes. I really love that in my day. Thanks for listening. Goodbye. Goodbye.